Welcome, and thank you for joining us. We are pleased to present Dr. Norman Geisler leading us in today's study, entitled, Are There Errors in the Bible? Here is Dr. Geisler. Thank you very much. It's great to uh, be here. Of course, it's great to be anywhere, uh, especially great to be here. I'd rather be here than where your pastor is. I've been there uh, in uh, Nigeria, and believe me, he uh, needs our prayer as he goes uh, around there, so I trust that you're praying uh, for him. Uh, if you're visiting, I'm not the pastor, I'm uh, just a substitute. I was in a little country church once, and there was a broken window, and so they put a piece of cardboard uh, in, and I said to the congregation, I'm not, I'm not a the pastor, I'm a substitute, I'm kind of like that piece of cardboard there. And after the service, a lady came up to me and said, uh, Pastor Geisler, uh, you're no substitute, you're a real pain. Uh, <laughs> So I trust I won't be a real pain uh, to you today. Let me introduce my uh, bride of 59 years. Uh, 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 we, uh, I was five and she was four when we were married, so we're not that old, but uh, God has been good to us. We have six children, three boys and three girls. It's called Planned Parenthood. It's very difficult to make them quite even, as you know. Uh, we named them all Bible names. The girls, ours, Ruth, Rhoda, Rachel, and the boys, uh, D's, David, Daniel, and then the third boy came along. So it's another boy's name that begins with D from the Bible. Demetrius, Diotrephes, Demas, Devil, we thought of that. <laughs> so we called him Paul. Just <laughs> dropped the line on, on the D and made a P out of it. Someone said to my wife, what are you going to call him? She said, we're going to call him quits. That's what we're going to call him. Eeny, meeny, miny, and Henry didn't want no mo. Uh, well, I'm glad to see you have a sense of humor. As my son said, uh, Dad, your humor starts low and goes down from there. So uh, if you don't laugh at these, you don't get anything to laugh at. That's uh, uh, all there is to uh, laugh at. The question uh, I want to raise today is a question that comes from our culture. Uh, the Bible, are there any uh, errors? We live in an age in which the critics are saying things like Da Vinci said. Many have made a trade of delusions and false miracles, deceiving the stupid multitude, that's us. Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false. There are actually missionaries who uh, left the field after reading that book. There were pastors who left their uh, pulpits. Maybe they didn't notice right over Mona Lisa's left eye, it says a novel. A novel. Uh, almost everything uh, Dan Brown wrote is wrong in that novel. And we have the Jesus Seminar, a group of 70 plus scholars who get together with little colored beads and they vote on which of the sayings of Jesus did Jesus say? I know it sounds <laughs> funny, but that's what they do. And they concluded that 82% are definitely not authentic, 16% more are doubtful. That's 98% of the red-letter edition of the Gospels you can't trust. We have a guy named Bart Ehrman teaches uh, right here in uh, North Carolina. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and, uh, Trinity, uh, and uh, Wheaton College. And he says, And these New Testament manuscript copies differ from one another in many thousands of places. He estimates uh, 400,000. These copies differ from each other in so many places, we don't even know how many differences there are in his book, Misquoting uh, Jesus, which he definitely did. Well, I want to respond to the critics and say there are three reasons why we believe that the Bible cannot have any errors. Reason number one, God the Father. Reason number two, God the Son. Reason number three, 
God the Holy Spirit. You say you're being facetious. No, I'm not being facetious. Reason number one, God the Father. God cannot err. The Bible is the word of God. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. Now, that's called a syllogism in logic. If the two premises are true, the conclusion follows from them logically. If God cannot err and the Bible is the word of God, then mark it down. The Bible cannot err. And if you think the Bible can err, then you have to deny either the first premise, God cannot err, or the second premise, or both. That's the only alternatives you have. Deny God cannot err, or deny the Bible is the word of God, or both. Let's take a look at the evidence. Jesus said to God, your word is truth. Now notice he didn't say has truth. He said is truth. In light there is no darkness. In goodness there is no evil. And in truth there is no error. The psalmist said the sum of your word is truth. The whole thing. The sum of it is truth. Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. We've kind of reversed that in our culture. Man, who's known to be a liar, says that God isn't telling the truth. Titus 1.2 says, the God who cannot lie. It would be impossible. If God tried to lie, it would get stuck in his throat. He couldn't get it out. God cannot lie. Hebrews 6 says, it's impossible for God to lie. His very nature is truth. It's contradictory to who he is uh, to tell a lie. Let's look at the other premise. Is the Bible really the word of God? It says so. Jesus said, If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture, the graphe, the writing, the written word of God cannot be broken laying aside the commandment of God you hold the traditions of making the word of God of none effect through your traditions he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees the word of God is exalted above all human traditions Paul said all scripture not part of it but all of it is breathed out by God the word inspiration there is the Greek word for breathe out, theopneustos. Uh, it's the word that's described beautifully in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus said, Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All scripture is God breathed. Now he's talking about the whole Old Testament because the New Testament isn't yet written. But the same thing applies to the New Testament because in 1 Timothy 5.18, It quotes the uh, Gospels as a scripture and Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 at verses 15 and 16 refers to uh, the New Testament as scripture, said Paul's writings as scripture. So all scripture is God breathed. Not as though the word of God has taken none effect, Romans 9, 6. Yes, the Bible is the word of God. Sometime when you have uh, a little time uh, that you can check these out, it makes an interesting study. By the way, I'm uh, giving you this entire PowerPoint. All you have to do is contact the church. I gave it to them, and and they'll give it to you with all the verses and everything in it, so you don't have to copy all this down. In the left column, it says, God said in Genesis 12.3. When it's quoted in the New Testament, it says, the Bible says. Well, what God says, the Bible says. Then it reverses it, Genesis 2, 24. The scripture said, the author of Genesis said, but when that's quoted in the New Testament, Matthew 19, it says God says. Let's take a couple examples and look at them. Genesis 12, 3, now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before it was changed to Abraham, uh, God said to Abram, Get out of your country and your kindred from your father's house unto a land that I will show thee. 
But when that's quoted in the New Testament, Galatians 3.8, it says, The scripture preached to Abraham, saying, Get out of your country, etc. Well, what God says, the Bible says. And then it reverses. In Genesis 2.24, the author of Genesis, Moses, said, A man shall not uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother. When Jesus quoted that Matthew 19, he said, God said a man shall leave his father and mother. Well, what Moses said, God said. The Bible says, God says. And that's true of dozens of uh, verses. The conclusion, the Bible is the word of God. God can't err. Hence, the Bible cannot err. Reason number two, I believe there are no errors in the Bible. God the Son. Whatever the Son of God affirmed as true is true. Jesus affirmed the Bible as the word of God. Therefore, it is true that the Bible is the word of God. Now, this particular reason is very embarrassing to the critic because most of the critics think Jesus was a good man, a good teacher. But if Jesus was a good teacher, then the Bible must be the word of God because Jesus said it was. Where did he say that? Well, I'll give you the verses in a moment just to draw the conclusion to this first point. If the Son of God affirmed the Bible is true, and Jesus affirmed the Bible is the word of God, it is true the Bible is the word of God, and God cannot err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. Now, when you have time, take your Bible, get a red-letter edition of the Bible, where all Jesus' words are in a red, and just read the red. And just ask one question. What did Jesus think about the Bible? What was Jesus' view of the Bible? Because after all, if we're followers of Jesus, then if Jesus taught something over and over and over again, we should believe it. Now, here's what Jesus taught. The Bible has divine authority. Let me give you a little uh, Bible trivia question. What's the most often repeated phrase in the Bible with doctrinal importance? It's mentioned three times when Jesus was tempted by the devil. It is written. Three times he said that. I counted 92 times in the New Testament. That or a similar phrase is used. 92 times Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, to the crowds, it is written. That was the divine authority of his message. The written word of God. Jesus said the Bible is indestructible. In Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. Not the dotting of an I or the cross of a T. Not one jot or tittle. In Hebrew, it means not the smallest Hebrew letter or the smallest part of the smallest letter. It's literally indestructible. Scotchman lived next door to an Irishman, and Scotchman had built a fence out of stone, three feet high and three feet wide. His Irish neighbor said to him, what would you do that for? Three feet high and three feet wide. Scotchman said, so when the wind blows it over, it'll be just as tall as it was before. Now, the Bible's kind of like that fence. The, the winds of skepticism and doubt have been blowing on the Bible now for 2,000 years. The Bible is still alive and the skeptics are all dead. In 303, Diocletian, the Roman emperor, burned every Bible he could get his hands on. And he got his hands on almost all the Bibles. Diocletian's dead, but the Bible is the world's bestseller. Do you know how many Bibles have been printed all time? Six billion. We only have six plus billion people in the world. There's been one Bible printed for almost every person alive. It's the world's bestseller. No close seconds. 
the close seconds are built on the Bible, like Pilgrim's uh, Progress and the works of Shakespeare, Thomas Akempis. Uh, uh, the Bible is literally indestructible. Jesus said it. I believe it, and that settles it for me. That's a chorus we used to sing in Sunday school when I was growing up. You don't need the second stanza there. Jesus said it, that settles it. Doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. If Jesus said it, and Jesus is the Son of God, then mark it down. If Jesus is the Son of God, then the Bible is the Word of God. It's divinely authoritative, indestructible, and unbreakable. Jesus said the Bible has ultimate supremacy. If there's a debate between any tradition, any teaching, the Bible's the last word on the topic. If the devil misquotes the Bible, the last word on the topic is to properly quote uh, the Bible. Has ultimate supremacy over all human tradition and teaching, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus affirmed that the Bible is historically reliable. Now, a lot of people will say things like, well, you can trust the Bible on spiritual matters, but not on historical matters. Or you can trust the Bible on uh, uh, doctrinal matters, but not scientific matters. If the Bible says that you can trust it because Jesus said it's true. And what Jesus did during his life is very interesting. He picked the most disputed passages in the Old Testament. And he personally affirmed that they're true. Matthew 12. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, even so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So if you don't believe in the story about Jonah, you also have to disbelieve Jesus. Because Jesus said it's true. And if Jesus is the Son of God, and he said that that's historical, not hysterical. That's a tale of a whale, not a whale of a tail. If Jesus said it, that settles it for every follower of Jesus. This little girl took her Bible and she was witnessing on the street corner. And a town skeptic came by and said, you don't believe that, do you? She said, yeah, I believe the whole thing. He said, well, parts of it have been disproven by modern science. She said, like what? He said, like that story of Jonah. You can't live in a whale's belly for three days and three nights. There's no air. You'd suffocate. Gastronomical juices in the stomach would eat you up. She said, if you're talking about the story of Jonah, I believe it's true. He said, well, how do you know it's true? She said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah if it's true. He said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? She said, then you ask him. <laughs> only two places if he's not there he'll be the other place uh, Jesus said that Jonah is historically reliable and he compared it to his own death and resurrection Matthew chapter 24 another part of the Bible that skeptics laugh at Noah and the flood Jesus said as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And he went into detail. They'll be marrying, eating, drinking, etc. Of the first 22 chapters of Genesis, Jesus and his apostles affirm something in every one of those chapters as historically reliable. Jesus said the Bible is scientifically accurate. Now, in Matthew 19, they came to him with a moral question. Is it right or wrong to divorce your wife for any cause? That's a moral question. He gave them a scientific answer. He said, God created male and female, and he united them, and he said, what God has joined, let not man put asunder. Just as it was in the beginning. God made male and female. Now, wait a minute. Jesus affirmed that Adam and Eve were real, that Adam and Eve were created. Oops. I'm sorry, Mr. Darwin. Uh, you have a dilemma. Who's more likely to be right? A 19th century 
creature, Charles Darwin, or the eternal creator, Jesus Christ? Who's more likely to know how you got here? Darwin or the divine? I'm betting on Jesus. I'm betting on Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in John 3.12, If you don't believe me when I speak of earthly things, how are you going to believe me when I speak of heavenly things? If you don't believe Jesus when he tells you how the heavens go, how can you believe him when he tells you how to go to heaven? Jesus affirmed the Bible is factually inerrant. It has no errors. He looked right at the Sadducees. Now, you remember the Sadducees differed from the Pharisees. Pharisees believed in the resurrection, spirit, and angels. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. He said, you do err. He looked right at them, pointed his bony finger at their nose and said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures. If you knew the scriptures, you wouldn't err. Why? Because they're inerrant. And the reason you have errant teaching is you don't have an errant basis, inerrant basis for your teaching. Jesus affirmed the Bible has divine authority, indestructibility, unbreakability, ultimate supremacy, historical reliability, scientific accuracy, and factual inerrancy. If Jesus is the Son of God, then the Bible is the Word of God. And if the Bible is not the Word of God, then Jesus is not the Son of God. The two go hand in hand. You can't take one without the other. The living word, Christ, points to the written word. The written word, the scripture, points to the living word. Now, here's a bad argument you sometimes hear. The Bible is the words of human beings. Every book in the Bible, some 40 authors, is written by a human being. Every word in the Bible is a human word. Human beings err. Therefore, the Bible errs. I say this is a bad argument. Why? Because of the second premise, human beings err. It's true that human beings err, but it's not true that human beings always err. And the only way you get that conclusion from those two premises is to say that human beings always err. The Bible is the words of human beings, therefore the Bible errs. But human beings don't always err. For example, I'm going to write you an inerrant book right now. Page 1. 1 plus 1 is 2. Page 2. 2 plus 2 is 4. Page 3. 3 plus 3 is 6. I can do 3 or 4 more pages without an error. Some of you can do more. There are actually inerrant phone books. There are phone books where every number is right. There are inerrant math books. There are math books where every single problem is worked out right. Human beings don't always err. So the argument is false. And human beings do not err when moved by God who cannot err. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. How can a perfect God use imperfect creatures to make a perfect book? Because God can draw a straight line with a cricket stick. Yeah, Paul was not a perfect author. Peter wasn't a perfect author. But the perfect God can take an imperfect author just like a cricket stick and draw a straight line with it. Look at what the scriptures say. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatever I've said to you. We have people who say, you know, I can't believe what it says in the Gospels because even if they were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't written until 20 or 30 years after the events. Jesus died in 33 A.D., and these books weren't written until at least 60 or 70 A.D. How can these people... 30 or 40 years later, remember word for word all these things that Jesus said. That's the objection. Here's the answer. 
But the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've said to you. Now, even apart from the Holy Spirit, I can remember things that were said, uh, let's see now, 64 years ago, word for word. They're usually jokes. I can't forget a joke. I remember stupid jokes I heard 64 years ago, 1950, the year I was saved. One of them went like this. Why do old maids only have seven buttons? They can't fascinate. Now, that stupid joke, I remember word for word for 64 years. Think the apostles will have any trouble remembering the very words of God that Jesus uttered? Or here's another one I remember word for word. Did you hear about the cross-eyed school teacher? She was so uh, cross-eyed she couldn't see eye to eye with her pupils. She was so cross-eyed that when she cried, the tears ran down her back. And they took her to the doctor and found out she had bacteria. I remember that joke word for word for 64 years. Why should the disciples have problems remembering what Jesus, the Son of God, said? And in addition, I don't have the Holy Spirit helping me to remember stupid jokes. Uh, They had the Holy Spirit helping them. Peter said, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. How were the books of the Bible written? An author didn't sit down and say, I think I'll write an inspired book today. How do we know? Prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That, the picture there is a sailboat moved on by wind. You put the sailboat down, there's no wind at all, and uh, it's not going to move. The movement came from God. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Luke wrote, God spoke by the mouth of of his holy prophets long ago. Now here's a good analogy. The living word and the written word. The Savior and the scriptures. The Savior has a divine nature. He's the Son of God. Scripture has a divine nature. It's the word of God. Jesus has a human nature. He was born of a human being. Mary was his actual mother. The Bible has a human nature. Every book was written by a human being. It's a co-authored book. God and the human being. Now, Jesus is one person combining two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature in one person. The Bible is one set of propositions or words which has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus was one person with two natures, without sin he didn't sin and the Bible is one set of propositions without error it doesn't err now let me give you the scriptural evidence Jesus was without sin Hebrews 4.15 he had no sin 2 Corinthians 5.21 he was without blemish or defect 1 Peter 1.19 He's righteous, 1 John 2, 1. He's pure, 1 John 3, 3. Likewise, the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3, 16. It's out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, 4. It's perfect. That's the word for a Passover lamb that was without spot or blemish. It's flawless, Proverbs 30. Cannot be broken, John 10, 35. Reason number three, God the Holy Spirit. The logic of the argument. The spirit of truth cannot utter error. The Bible is the utterance of the spirit of truth. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. Now, if the premises are true, the conclusion follows. So let's take a look at the premises. Uh, The first one is... Self-evident, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, God himself cannot utter error. We gave the verses uh, before. It's absolutely errorless. 
But is the Bible the utterance of the spirit of truth? Yes, it is. It says so. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, said David. He wrote 72 of the 150 Psalms. And on his deathbed, he confessed that the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. What came off of my tongue was his word. God whispered in my ear and I spoke the words. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is written, the graphe, the writings, the Bible, proceeds out of the mouth of God. How is it when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into part of the truth, some of the truth, some of the time? No. He will guide you into all truth. Why? He's the spirit of truth. Not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but in words which the Holy Spirit teaches. These are spirit-taught words. Now, let me ask you a question. The Bible says God is omniscient. If we believe the first verse of the Bible, every other verse is believable. Why? If there is a God, a supernatural being beyond nature who created everything in this world, that he's beyond every finite thing in this world. He's infinite. He's without limits, the psalmist uh, says. Here's the question. How many mistakes can an omniscient God make? Omniscient means all-knowing, knows everything. How many mistakes can an omniscient being make in math? None. How many can he make in history? None. How many can you make in geology and geography? How many mistakes can an omniscient God make? Zero. Zip. Nil. Nada. Now, if the Bible is the word of God, then how many mistakes can it make? None. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture, all graphe comes from God himself. Conclusion, the Bible cannot err because the Bible is the word of God and God cannot err. Therefore, the Bible cannot err. I have three reasons for believing that. God the Father can't err. God the Son can't err. And God the Holy Spirit cannot err. Therefore, an attack on the Bible is an attack on the authenticity of God the Father. Affirming there is one error anywhere in the Bible is an attack on the authority of God the Son. To say the Bible has a mistake is an attack on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In short, those who deny the inerrancy of the Bible, those who claim there are errors in the Bible have engaged in an all-out attack on the triune God. That, to me, is a very serious, serious error. Here's what St. Augustine said. And I challenge you to say this more profoundly, more simply, or more succinctly. I don't think it can be done. If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, notice we didn't say there weren't any apparent errors in the Bible. We didn't say there weren't any apparent contradictions. I'm going to deal with those in a moment. If we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in the Bible, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. Cross that one off your list. You've got four choices. God Almighty didn't make a mistake. Here are your three choices. The manuscript is faulty, the translation is wrong, or you have not understood. That's it. But don't be so presumptuous and blasphemous to say that God Almighty made a mistake. Now here's a helpful comparison. The study of science and the study of the Bible. I commend to you that both The study of science and the study of the Bible follow the same pattern. Both have many difficulties. Scientists run into, you got a bumblebee, the wings are too small to fly, but it flies. 
They didn't know how a bumblebee could fly until they kept studying and discovered a little power pack on the bumblebee that makes the wings go at tremendous speeds. I commend to you that there are many difficulties in the Bible. Matthew says there's one angel at the tomb, and John says there are two angels at the tomb. The Gospels say that Judas hanged himself. The book of Acts says he fell headlong and his bowels gushed out. There are many, many difficulties in the Bible. I've written a book on 800 of them uh, called The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. In the study of science, what do scientists do when they come upon a uh, a difficulty? We shot our rocket off to Saturn, and they got to Saturn, and what did they find? Braided rings. What do we got, a heavenly hairdresser? Cosmic comedian out there, what? Braided rings on Saturn? So you know what all the scientists did? They resigned and became plumbers. Remember that? No, you don't, because it didn't happen. Why? They assume that there's an explanation for it. And they keep on studying. What do skeptics do when they come upon an apparent contradiction in the Bible? They fold it up and cease believing in God. Wrong response. What should they do? Same thing a scientist does. Assume there's an explanation and keep on studying. Let me give you an example. Dr. Kantzer, Harvard PhD, one of my professors at Trinity Seminary when I went there, uh, when I taught there back in the 70s, had two friends out east, both of whom were eyewitnesses of an accident, and they each gave apparently contradictory reports. Witness one. Our mutual friend was standing on a street corner, hit by a bus, injured but not killed. Died sometime later. Witness number two. She was riding in a car. The car was struck, and she was thrown from the car and killed instantly. And Dr. Kanser said, I couldn't explain that apparent difficulties. But I knew this. Both of the witnesses were reliable. Both of the witnesses were eyewitnesses. And so I assumed there was an explanation and kept waiting for more information. His faith was rewarded because they found out that she was standing by the street corner. She was hit by a bus. She was injured and not killed. And a good Samaritan came along and picked her up in a car and sped off for the hospital, and the car was hit, and she was thrown from the car and killed instantly. You say, well, that's easy to explain. Yeah, once you got more information. Now, here's my contention about skeptics. They don't know too much about the Bible. They know too little. They know too little. I've been studying the Bible day and night for 64 years now. I've looked at over 800 of these alleged contradictions in the Bible. And the more I study, the more I'm sure that there are no contradictions or errors in the Bible. Why? Because the more information I get, the more answers I get. My list used to be this long. My list is now this long. Uh, Assume there's an explanation and keep on studying. And when you do, what will happen? Well, you'll find out how the bumblebee flies. But you might not yet know how life exists on thermal vents in the depths of the sea. Because life exists on thermal vents. too hot for life, but there's life. I can tell you one thing. When they find out, they're going to be able to make great asbestos suits. Uh, Keep on studying, and you'll get more explanations. They once said Moses couldn't write the first five books of the Bible because there was no writing in Moses' day. Now we know writing goes back 2,000 years before Moses. 2,000 years. Go to the Wycliffe Museum in Charlotte and see the history of it. They once said the Bible can't be true because it mentions Hittites and there were no such people known to anyone. No historian ever mentioned them. Now we have the whole Hittite library. 
that we found in Turkey. Many are explained. Here's a good word, heuristic. Heuristic means it prompts further investigation. Believing the Bible has no errors in it has heuristic value. It prompts further investigation. What if those 800 alleged contradictions weren't there? I can tell you I wouldn't know half as much about the Bible as I now know because they prompted me to study and look more deeply into the issue, continue to do research. And here's my conclusion. The Bible doesn't err, but the critics do. The Bible doesn't err, but the critics do. Here's an error. This is the most often used illustration of errors in the Bible. Where did Cain get his wife? He married a wife, had children, but there were no women to marry. There was Adam and Eve and Cain, and Cain killed Abel, and he's dead. Where did Cain get his wife? I know, eHarmony.com. <laughs> no, the Bible says where he got it. You should read a little farther, like the next chapter. The days of Adam and Eve after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Adam started having children when he was 130. He died when he was 930. He had kids for 800 years. Do you know how many kids you can have in 800 years? A lot. A lot of kids. He had all kinds of people to choose from. He said, well, marrying a close relative produces freaks. Well, look around. Here we are. Here we are. It didn't at the beginning because they weren't reproducing weaknesses. There were no weaknesses that had yet developed, and the law didn't exist until after in the book of Leviticus. Mayor, uh, an error of misinterpreting Genesis 1. Problem, Genesis says the sun was made on the fourth day, yet there is evening and morning light from the first day. How can you have light on the first day when the sun wasn't made till the fourth day? Answer, first there was light from the first day when God said, let there be light. And there was morning. Second, there was light from the first day, but the light holders, sun, moon, and stars, did not become visible until the fourth day. Just as we can see that it is day on a foggy day, even though we can't see the sun. But when the fog clears away, you can see the actual light holders there. It's not a contradiction in the Bible. It's an error of the critic. Genesis 1 and 2 give two contradictory creation accounts. No, they don't. First, Genesis chapter 1 talks about the creation of the animals. Genesis 2 talks about the naming of the animals. Secondly, Genesis 1, the animals are created before man, but in Genesis 2, they are named after man is created. It does not say that they were created after man uh, was. simply says Adam named the animals which God had already created in Genesis 2 and verse 19. The greatest Hebrew scholar of the Old Testament, Casuto, uh, says flatly that the critics are wrong. These are not contradictory accounts of creation. Error of confusing our fallible interpretation with God's infallible revelation. You know, I've been wrong many times about the Bible. I used to think the sons of God in Genesis 6 were angels. Then I thought they were the line of Seth. Then I thought they were the great men of old. Then I thought they were demon-possessed people. There were four views on that. And I've held all four views over the last 50 years. I had to be wrong three times. The problem wasn't the Bible. The problem was an interpretation of the Bible. The Bible can't be wrong, but our interpretation of it can be wrong. The Bible is infallible, but we are not. God has two revelations, general revelation in nature and special revelation in the Bible. And there's no contradiction between them. No one has ever proven an error between the facts of science and the facts of scripture. 
where are the errors? The views of scientists about those facts and the views of theologians about those facts. Some scientists think when they look at those facts that evolution is true and the earth is round. When theologians look at those facts, they say creation is true. And one time they said the world was square. Well, I deliberately use an illustration where they were right once and wrong once, and we were right once and we were wrong once. The problem was not in the facts. People say, well, one time they believed the world was square, now we believe the world is round, uh, so the belief changed. No. The facts didn't change. They were wrong when they believed it was square. It's always been round. It's never been square. Error of assuming a partial report is false. Here's an example, the inscription on the cross. Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. And John said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Four different ways... The inscription on the cross is recorded in the Gospels. Is that an error? No, here would be an error. This is George of Arimathea, the king of the Gentiles. That'd be an error. They all say the same thing. Claims to be the king of the Jews. Complete sentence was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Note. Each gospel has the essential part of it, the king of the Jews, altogether gives the whole statement. Uh, there's no contradiction there. Another error of the critics, assuming that divergent accounts are false. Matthew says there was one angel at the tomb. John says there were two angels there. Now, my friend John Wenham, Anglican minister who believes in the inerrancy of the Bible, was staying at our home during the inerrancy conference in 1978. And he said, you know... Uh, uh, there's a simple mathematical rule that explains this. It's an infallible mathematical rule. I said, what is it, John? He said, have you ever noticed that wherever there are two, there's always one? Never fails. Matthew did not say there was only one. There at one and the same time that there were two. If there were two, then there surely was one. Matthew wasn't wrong because you have to add the word only to make Matthew wrong, and you're wrong for adding it. Example number two. Judas hanged himself. Acts 1. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Not too good just before lunch, but there you have it. Is that a contradiction? No. Sometime after hanging himself, his body fell to the ground, broke open, his entrails gushed out. Perfectly harmonious accounts. Error of forgetting the Bible uses non-technical everyday language. The Bible wasn't written for scientists. It's a pre-scientific book, but it's not unscientific. The Bible uses everyday, common, non-technical language. Bible was written for the common man in common language. Otherwise, it had been meaningless for 1900 years. He uses everyday observational language. This is not unscientific, it's pre scientific. Illustration. It speaks of the sun standing still, Joshua 10, and the sun rising, Joshua 1. Now, every scientist in the country, every day, 365 days a year, says this. Sunrise today, 7.10, sunset tonight. You say, well, that's unscientific. No, that's observational language. Did you ever hear of a scientist who said this? Honey, look at the beautiful earth rotation. No. And the Bible speaks in the common language. In fact, the New Testament is called Koine Greek. Koine Greek was common, everyday uh, language. The Bible lasted for a thousand years. The Latin Vulgate was written in the vulgar, the common language of the day uh, by Jerome. Now let me conclude with this thought. Mark Twain said this. It's not the part of the Bible I do not understand that bothers me the most. 
It's the part of the Bible I do understand that bothers me the most. Think of that. Which part of the Bible bothers you the most? I used to be bothered by who the rider and the white horse and the red horse in Revelation 6 were. I don't care if it's the Lone Ranger and Tonto. You know, I'm not really bothered by that anymore. What bothers me is who's the man on the red cross, the blood-stained cross, who died for my sins. I used to be bothered by, what are the seven thunders are? Nobody knows. It says, seal it up. You know what I'm bothered by now? What the thunderous voice from Mount Sinai said, thou shalt not kill. And we just killed 3,000 babies today and yesterday and the day before, and we've killed 55 million of them since January 22nd, 1973. That bothers me. It's not the part of the Bible I don't understand that bothers me. It's the part I do understand. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Which of these words do you not understand? That bothers me more than the parts I don't understand. The most powerful missionary speaker I ever heard was way back when I was in Bible school. He leaned over the podium and he said, I've been a missionary for 14 years and I was never called. Goodness, Jonah was called and didn't go. This guy went and wasn't called. Then he paused. I've been a missionary for 14 years and I was never called. I was just commanded like the rest of you. So I'm not called to be a missionary. Yeah, but you're commanded to do missionary work. I'm not called to be an evangelist yet, but you're commanded to evangelize and share your faith. It's not the part of the Bible I don't understand. It's the part I do understand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that... Heaven and earth will pass away, but it'll still be there. Thank you that forever your word is settled in heaven. Thank you the flowers fade and the grass withers, but the word of God stands forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.